lot of time to introduce or any of that. I just want to say thank you to a very, very special friend of, of Bethlehem Assembly of God, personal friend, Dr. Michael Brown, who um, he's a noted author. At 2 o'clock, 2 o'clock, um, WMCA line of fire. And I'm telling you, if you want to be educated, if you want to be able to defend your faith, uh, you need to listen. Line of fire. Just tell your teacher you have to go in the middle of class. You have to go listen. You'll be back in a little while. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, he's been a long friend, longtime friend of, of our church and, and a personal friend. And we thank the Lord for how God is raising up men and women to defend their faith, to help us to um, kind of sort through some of the questions we may have. Um, and sometimes, even in Christianity, there are times when you may read something in the Word of God and um, you may think, well, what does that really mean? How does that really apply to my life? And certainly when it comes to the issue of Calvinism and Arminianism, or at least uh, free will versus uh, chosen and predestined and all of those different things, certainly that makes a huge difference in the way that we relate to others and the way that we relate to God. So it is a critical issue. It's a critical subject. And um, so I, I had asked Dr. Michael Brown, who travels around the world, has an incredibly busy schedule, uh, if he would come and share with the students of, uh, of the school and also anyone else who wanted to come. And, uh, and all I needed to do is say, would you please come and talk to students? And um, bam, he's whatever I can do. I'm there to help you, Pastor Stevens. So uh, I'm not only honored, but I'm really appreciative that he's taken his time out of a tr tremendously busy schedule to pour into you, the students' lives. And so uh, without any further ado, I, I want to bring up uh, Dr. Michael Brown. He's going to take some questions. He's going to take some of your questions, and um, he's going to help us to understand a little bit more about Calvinism, Armenianism, and what the Word of God says and how it all applies to our life. Let's have a word of prayer together. Lord, we thank you today for how you're going to speak to us. God, we thank you that we can wrestle with some of these things, and we know that there's a fine tension between these things in the Word of God. But Lord, you call us to be fully equipped disciples, fully devoted followers of Christ, understanding, educating, educated in the Word so that we can understand what your Word says so we can help others find Christ. So we pray for Dr. Michael Brown that you bless him, that you help him, you strengthen him. And we thank you for these students that are here today that you will also speak into their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give Dr. Michael Brown a big hand. Well, good morning. It's... Uh Wonderful to be here with you. I'm uh, going to be ministering this, this weekend, uh, tonight at, at Pillars of Faith Tabernacle in Flushing, doing a, a revolution rally, really stirring hearts, and a radical way to live for Jesus. And then tomorrow night, I'm actually debating a, a former student of mine, a, a pastor on Long Island, on Calvinism. So if you want to come to a debate, uh, it'll be in Merrick at the Grace Reform Baptist Church, so a Calvinistic church. Uh, we'll be debating tomorrow night at 7, and then if you happen to live anywhere near the Bronx, I'll be at Infinity Church in the Bronx Sunday morning. When, when Pastor Steve heard I was going to be around and asked uh, what the schedule was, I was originally going to be flying in today to speak tonight, but when I realized we have the opportunity to, uh, 
to be together. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll fly in Thursday night instead to be here. So hang on. Here's what we have to do. Everybody look at me for a second. All right? And I want you to give me the impression that you're really interested. Okay? Because some of you are kind of like sitting like this. And that, that's... So since I specially rearranged my schedule to be here, some of you look really sharp and focused. So even if you're not sharp and focused and you'd rather be somewhere else, okay, then just give me the impression, the outward impression that you're really excited. All right? Great. <coughs> um, God saved me in 1971. I'm, I'm Jewish, and at that time I was a heroin-shooting, LSD-using hippie rock drummer. Uh, in fact, I didn't look the way I look now, back then. Uh, I had long hair. I, I thought I was very cool and uh, was the heaviest drug user in my high school. I had the nicknames of uh, Drug Bear and Iron Man because of the large quantities of drugs I could take. The first time I went to a church service was to t pull my two best friends out. If you know Pastor David Nizzolo here, he was a little boy then. It was his dad's church. He was the pastor. Uh, I went to the church to pull my friends out, and one of the young ladies knew me from my high school, and she wrote down in her journal, Antichrist comes to church, because I was a real wicked, proud kid. And um, some years after that, my wife saw a picture of me. We met at 19. She was an atheist, Jewish atheist, and God saved her, brought us together. And uh, she saw a picture of me from the years before I was saved and started laughing. I said, you're laughing because I look like a woman. She said, no, I'm, I'm laughing because you look like an ugly woman. If you get, get online and check, check for my testimony, just uh, search uh, from LSD to PhD with uh, just that, you'll, you'll find some old pictures of me and you'll recognize she was right. Um, when, when I was saved for a few months, I, I started to get really hungry for God. It, it took a little while to get my head clear because of all the drugs I had been using. But, but then I started to get really hungry for God, hungry for his word. And I remember I said to myself, I, I could live a clean but empty life because you know, when you're just into drugs and rock music and stuff or whatever the scene is, that you could just spend all your time doing that and you really do nothing. Now that we're saved and, and we weren't getting high, we weren't just laying around doing nothing, I thought, okay, what are we going to do? So I started to get really hungry for God. And, and I said to myself, I could live a clean but empty life or I could give myself to God the way I gave myself to drugs and rock music. So I just started to go after him. I just started to spend more and more time with God. By the time I was saved a year, I would spend at least six hours alone with the Lord in the Word and prayer. Uh, at least three hours a day praying. At least three hours a day in the Word. I'd read the scriptures two hours a day. I used to memorize 20 verses every day without fail. Did that for months and months and months. It'd take me an hour. I mean, my, my mind got really sharp after being so fried with drugs. So by the time I was saved two years, I'd read the Bible cover to cover through five times. I had memorized more than 4,000 verses. I was just really into this. But more than that, I really loved Jesus. And I, I would share the gospel with every person I had an opportunity to. And I, I couldn't wait to get to a church service and worship the Lord and full of joy. And, but as the years went on, here's what happened. I started college. I only went to college in those days to, to honor my parents because I still had the, the, the old hippie mentality of who needs formal education and I'm not going to get a regular job and so on. And so I still had that in the back of my head. So I went to college to honor my parents. And the church I was saved in was very devoted. We, we prayed a lot. We read the word a lot. 
but we were kind of narrow in our focus. In other words, if, if you had this doctrinal view, and you had this doctrinal view, uh, we couldn't really talk about it. You were either right or wrong. You were in or you were out. If you didn't do it exactly the way we did it, you were a little suspect. And I heard stuff about, quote, Calvinism or predestination, and it was, you know, this is bad stuff. Stay away from it. Dangerous. And I think, well, you know, wasn't Spurgeon, he was a great preacher, wasn't he a Calvinist? And yeah, he was, but it's still a bad doctrine. And Wesley was a great preacher, and he wasn't a Calvinist. Well, when, when I started college, and I started studying more, I started getting commentaries on the Bible and things like that. I started to realize, wow, a lot of these top scholars seem to be Calvinists. And it seems these, these great theologians, they seem to be Calvinists. If it's so bad, how come the smart people are Calvinists? That's what I started wondering. And at the same time I was going on in my studies, I started to study more and spend less time with God. Now look, we're called to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. But you know how it is. Sometimes it seems the really smart people, they understand a lot, but they don't have a lot of passion. And the people are like really passionate. They're not that smart. That's how it seems. Man, I just love Jesus. He's just wonderful. He just, my cat was stuck in the tree and Jesus answered. It's like, yeah, right, sure. And the other ones, yeah, but see, theologically, does God care about the cat and the tree? You know, and you get this contrast between mind and heart. And that's what started to happen to me. I, I started to get more and more intellectually oriented and less and less passionate about God, my personal relationship with him. I was still a seriously committed believer. At this point, married, now raising a family, and, and really had a heart to do good and to make a difference. But I was reading the Word. I wasn't so much reading it like God speak to me and open my heart and give me understanding. I was reading it more to, to, to work on my Hebrew because I was studying Hebrew in college and work on Greek and understand the languages better. It's good to do that. But I was doing it at the expense of God really speaking to me. And I started to get challenged, well, about Calvinism. What about all these great biblical scholars, these great theologians, and these great church leaders, these great missionaries, these great revivalists, these great evangelists? They're all Calvinists. Look at all these commentaries you're buying, and almost all of them are Calvinists. And come on, what about Romans 9? And look at that and think about that again, and the explanations you have for that are pretty weak and so on. So... <clears throat> What happened over, over a period of time as I wrestled with this is, is I became convinced that Calvinism was true. And, and for any here that aren't exactly familiar with the terms, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure they're clear in a minute. I think most of you are, but I'll just make sure they're clear in a minute. So I, I became convinced that I had to accept the fact that God was king and ruled and reigned and did whatever he wanted in the earth and at the same time was judge. That even though he was the one making the things happen, he was still the one judging us for what happened. Even if it seemed like a contradiction, I had to bow down before this God. Ended up switching over to another church. Uh, that's where my wife and I met Mr. and Mrs. Fowley. So we've known them since, since 1977. There are the folks here I've, I've known since 1971 and, and knew me before I was saved and can testify to how lost I was before I was saved. So I became part of a church that was very Calvinistic. And it, generally speaking, when people become Calvinistic, they really get into Calvinism. 
sometimes more than into Jesus. They're really into Calvinism and into this amazing doctrine, and we're orthodox, and we believe this, and we hold to this. But this church was rich in good works. We took refugees into our homes uh, from Southeast Asia, from Vietnam. We took poor into our homes. We, we lived really simply so that we could help more people. Uh, we were full of good works, but, but pretty empty in terms of, of real power. Uh, we were pretty prayerless, but we loved the Lord and were doing a lot of good. And I was now in grad school. I was at NYU. I got my bachelor's degree in, in, in Hebrew from Queens College. I was getting my master's degree and then my PhD in Near Eastern languages and literatures. You ever see some history channel thing and they'll show these ancient tablets and we've now discovered these? That's the stuff I was studying, ancient Babylonian or reading the Quran in Arabic. And I studied about 12, 13 different languages. I was finishing up my PhD work in Near Eastern languages and literatures, and God started to deal with me. God started to convict me that I had left my first love, that the early devotion, the early passion, the intimacy I had with Jesus, I had left that. And he started to convict me that, that I needed to turn back. And, and that was a humbling thing to say you're wrong. It was very difficult. And by the way, the, the earlier you learn to say that, the better, because the older you get, the harder it is. To, to say, man, I, I've been heading in the wrong direction. Yeah, God wanted me in those studies, but I had made them into an idol. I wanted to be somebody and be known and, and be the smartest in this and the best in this, whatever it was. What does it say in 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter? Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. So God started to, to bring me in a spirit of repentance for, for pride, for coldness, for leaving my first love, I started to pursue the Lord with hunger and thirst in a way beyond what I had in years. And God began to put in my heart he was going to pour out his spirit in the church where we were. And he did. I'm a living witness to it. Some here are living witnesses to it. God poured out his spirit. The fire fell in my life and changed me and changed others in that church. I've been changed ever since. That happened in 1982. But as that happened, I thought, wait a second, wait a second. What about all this Calvinism? What about this theology that I hold to? And I said, you know, I really didn't learn this on my knees, alone with God, in the Word. I learned this more by reading theology books. And this was not part of greater fire and passion in my heart. It actually contributed for me, not for others necessarily, but for me to greater coldness in my own heart. And I thought, you know, i got to be honest. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, what God's saying to us is choose, 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 choose. And based on the choices you make, there are consequences for good or bad. And I said, I really didn't get this from above. And I stepped back from Calvinistic beliefs. And even though I, I have friends who are Calvinists, I teach at seminaries where the professors are Calvinists. Uh, I work together with folks who are Calvinists. I'm not a Calvinism basher. I'm absolutely convinced that it's not what Scripture teaches. So I, I've, I've been there and done that. You're not going to come up with a Calvinistic argument I, I haven't heard. You're not going to throw a verse at me I haven't heard. You're not going to trump me with, you know, the language is better or the Scripture is better. No, sorry, I, I got you on that. Uh, and, and I have a respect for good things about Calvinism. And yet I want to explain clearly why I'm not a Calvinist. So many of you know the history disputes in the days of the Reformation uh, over certain doctrinal points. And in, in Holland, 
a dispute over the teachings of John Calvin and another teacher, Jacob Arminius. And they end up coming up with, with five points in, in a debate in terms of what they should believe. And then church leaders end up siding with, with the Calvinistic belief. So, so how many don't know what TULIP is? Just raise your hands if you don't know what TULIP is. Okay, great. TULIP is just a convenient abbreviation for what are called the five points of Calvinism. This is the way it got formulated in this debate, what was called the Synod of Dort, which you don't need to worry about. So when does this take place? What century? Anybody know? I tell you what, I have, I have three copies. I was supposed to bring more, but they got shipped off to, to the meeting tomorrow night. I got three copies of a debate I just did on predestination, election, and the will of God. Uh, with my friend, Dr. James White. He's a committed Calvinist, but we're good friends. This debate was done in a very civil way. I've got three of these to give away before noon today, all right? So we'll, we'll, we'll start with this one. If you, can, uh, if you can tell me when the Synod of Dort took place, what, what century? Yes? 17th, which would be the 1600s, huh? All right. Well, there you go. Free. Okay. You're welcome. Now, it could be he's wrong and I'm wrong, but I think he's right anyway. <laughs> so, so here's the deal. Out of this, in other words, this was not Calvinist said, we teach the following. It was out of, the, out of this debate, five points came up with, and they ended up with this acronym TULIP. So T, this is what Calvinists believe, T stands for what? Total depravity. Meaning that human beings are sinful from birth and are incapable of doing anything towards spiritual life. In, in other words, the, old, the way someone once put it, you could say a rock has free will. If you let it go, it'll always go down. If you pick it up, it'll go up. In other words, there's nothing a human being can possibly do to go in the direction of God. That, that we are hopelessly sinful in ourselves. We might be nice to a friend or you know, might open the door for an old lady or something like that. But in and of ourselves, we're hopelessly sinful. Our, our wills are dead. We are spiritually dead. We're separated from God and are incapable of even responding. If God says, here's a free gift of salvation, we don't even have the, the capability of saying, I receive it. T, total depravity. The U stands for unconditional election, which means this. Before the world was created, God looked out at everything he, he would make. He looked out at every one of you, all of us, the entire human race. And for reasons known only to him, he chose this one for salvation and chose to pass by this one. In other words, you, 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 you're saved. Was it because he saw in you that you would believe? This is what Calvinists believe, not what I believe. It, it, was it because he saw, okay, one day she's going to believe. What's your name? Camille? One day Camille is going to believe, so I'm going to choose her. No, no, no. He chose you, and that's why you believe. So it had absolutely nothing to do with you. And what's your name? Monica. And he passed by Monica. Or let's reverse it. He chose Monica. And he passed by Camille. In other words, it's completely up to his choice 
and it had nothing to do, well, Camille was nice, Monica wasn't. Monica was nice, Camille wasn't. Nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with it whatsoever. One day she would believe. One day she would believe. No, no, no. Unconditional. Unconditional election. Now, the offshoot of that, which some Calvinists say amen to, and others don't like to say amen to, is that, and I'm not going to use either of you as examples right now. This, this is Billy and Bobby right here, okay? If he chose Billy to salvation, then he chose Bobby to damnation. That would be the offshoot of it, double predestination. Some will say, absolutely, yes, I believe that. Some hesitate a little when it comes to that. But that's the logical offshoot. If God had the power to save Billy and Bobby and chose only to save Billy, then he chose to damn Bobby or let Bobby be damned. That's the you. The Calvinist side would say, isn't this amazing? It's all by grace. It had nothing to do, you know, why Camille and not Monica? I don't know. It's just the grace of Jesus. You can't boast. Why Monica and not Camille? We're going to bounce it out. Don't worry. <laughs> we don't know. It's unconditional. Unconditional election. L, limited atonement. Limited in the sense that Jesus did not die for the sins of the world. This is what Calvinists will teach. Now, you, you may have been interested in Calvinism or heard some neat teaching or, or somebody on the internet or on radio, wow, I, I like his teaching, and not know they hold to this. But Calvinists believe very strongly in limited atonement, which means Jesus died for Billy and not Bobby. He chose Billy before the foundation of the world, and he died to save him. And when he died, he secured his salvation. But because Bobby was not chosen, he didn't die for Bobby. In other words, Jesus doesn't die on the cross to make salvation possible. He dies on the cross to secure the salvation of the elect. How are you elect? Because God chose you. This is what a Calvinist would believe. I'm not misrepresenting this in, in any way. So the way a Calvinist would say it, they'd say to those who are not Calvinists, Arminians or whatever else, you believe in a wide bridge, but it only goes halfway across the river. In other words, it makes salvation possible, but it doesn't guarantee anyone's salvation. We believe in a narrow bridge. It, it's only for the elect, but it goes all the way across the river. So T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Now, bear in mind, I know these, it's not hard to learn these things, but I know them and can give the arguments for them because I used to believe it. Okay, I, I didn't learn these to argue against them. I learned these because I believed them and I argued for them. I is irresistible grace. Put another way, God always gets his man. If God has chosen Billy and Jesus died to save Billy, that at some point in Billy's life, the Holy Spirit will draw Billy to himself, and he will not be able to resist it. He's dead in his sin. He'll be made alive. And when he's made alive, then he'll come to faith, and it's absolutely going to happen. And then P, what does the P stand for? Perseverance of the saints. If you're truly saved, you'll make it to the end. If you're truly saved, you will persevere. Well, what if you're truly saved and you mess up for a little while? Well, we'll know that you're truly saved because you repent and turn back and get back on the path. What if, what if Bobby really seemed to get saved one day and he wept at the altar 
And then he was reading the word and praying and telling everybody about Jesus. And then three years later, he got disappointed and he backslid. And he ended up denying the Lord and, and, and dying an atheist and an alcoholic. Well, then he was never really saved. He was never really saved. This is what a Calvinist would say. Because those who are truly saved will persevere to the end. So God chooses out whom he chooses out for reasons only known to him. But it has nothing to do with anything good in you or me. Because there's nothing good in you or me. Right? It has nothing to do with faith in you and me. Nothing. Purely God's sovereign choice. Jesus then dies for the elect. And then he saves the elect, bringing them to himself, and will cause the elect to persevere to the end. Now, there are some churches, especially some Baptist churches you run into, people believe in once saved, always saved. That's different than perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved says, once you get saved, no matter how you live, no matter what you do, you still go to heaven. You come up, you pray a little prayer at the altar. God, I'm sorry for my sins. Forgive me, forgive me. Give me eternal life, eternal life. Jesus, my Lord, Jesus, my Lord. Amen. Now you're good. You're good. You're safe. You're in. Doesn't matter if you go out of there and become a Satan worshiper. Doesn't matter. You're still safe. Doesn't matter if you go out of there and deny God. You're still safe. Doesn't matter if you go out of there and become a serial killer and die fighting off the police. You're still safe. That's complete nonsense. But that's not what Calvinists believe. Calvinists believe if you're truly saved, then you won't do those things. And if you do those things, then you weren't truly saved. So why, why is it that you've got fine people, fine church leaders, some of the greatest names in history who are Calvinists, and then fine people, some of the greatest leaders in church history who are absolutely were not Calvinists, why do we debate these things? Well, there's obviously a lot of scripture that you can interpret one way or the other. Obviously, people wouldn't do this, right? And there are certain truths that each side is making because this is within the body. How do we sort it out? And why, in fact, do I passionately debate against Calvinism? Let me give you a few points to explain this as best as I can. And then I want to leave some time for questions. If you yourself have seriously considered these things or heard arguments or read scriptures and you don't have answers for, I want to give adequate time for Q&A, all right? <clears throat> First thing, it's, it's just interesting. You can't prove anything from this, but it's interesting that once you close the New Testament and start reading what the early church leaders say, like the disciples of Paul and the disciples of John and the people like that, and you start tracing that, for a century or two or three, nobody knows anything about this. In other words, no one has heard of these types of notions that are foundational to Calvinism. Say, as far as absolutely no possible freedom for a human being to respond. We all agree you can't save yourself. But the question is, if you're in a pit, it's a thousand feet deep. In a hundred lifetimes, you could never climb out on your own. You know, the walls are 20 feet apart. It's slippery and what... If you had a thousand lifetimes, you could never climb out of that pit. But if a rope is thrown down and wrapped around you and someone says, just hold on, are you able to respond? Calvinist would say no. An Arminian would say God's grace, when he reaches down to us, empowers us to respond. What's interesting is that when you read what the early church leaders say for the first few centuries, they don't know anything about some of these foundational Calvinistic doctrines. It's not until the fourth century when you get to the teachings of, of Augustine that this starts to get really strong. 
and the strong emphasis on predestination and election. So what do Calvinist scholars say? Well, the early church missed this. Augustine got it right. But it's just a question mark. It's a fair question mark to say, how come the disciples of the apostles misunderstood the apostles? And it took three or 400 years to get things right. It would almost be like saying, Pastor Steve's been teaching and training people for years here, and those people go out and teach and preach, and they plant new churches, and they do this for two or 300 years, and then 400 years from now, someone comes up with a new doctrine and says, oh, well, this is what Pastor Steve actually taught. It's just curious to see that all of his immediate disciples and their disciples didn't know this. Just fair question mark to raise. Uh, once you come to the doctrine that Jesus did not die for the sins of the whole world, you have a whole lot of scriptures that say the opposite. And, and as a Calvinist, it troubled me because I was not satisfied with the answers that were given. I was not satisfied with the answers that were given that told me that Jesus did not shed his blood for the entire world. You say, well, did he shed his blood to make salvation possible or to save? Both. He shed his blood to make salvation possible for every human being on the planet and to express God's love for every human being on the planet and to secure the salvation of those who put their trust in him. There are many, many verses where you really have to kind of stand on your head and twist them to make them say something else. When you go a little further with this, let me ask you a question. If there was a point in your life where you clearly came to faith, some of you have been raised in the faith and as long as you remember, you've, you've loved the Lord. But if there was a point in your life where you came to faith, what happened? Did you get the revelation that you were sovereignly chosen or did God convict your heart, deal with you, convict you of sin, you need to turn to the Lord, open your eyes to who Jesus was, and you said, yes, I want to follow you. In other words, what we're conscious of is that we made a choice. We responded. I can tell you exactly what I did in November, December of 1971. What, what did Moses say to Israel? Choose this day whom you'll serve. Th this is theme throughout Scripture. John 1, as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. Acts 2, Peter preaching, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. You get to the end of the book of Revelation, the 22nd chapter. What's the final invitation there? Anybody quoted for me from memory? There's a final invitation in the book of Revelation. And the spirit, spirit, or you have to be a young person to quote this, all right, for it to work. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, come and, 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 and who, who, and, go ahead and read it. No, no, the last invitation, skip up a few verses. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. It is there, I promise. Come, and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who thirsts say, come. Let the one who desires 
okay, so let him who's thirsty come and let the one who desires come and take the water without price. In other words, do you want God? Will you turn to God? Here's your invitation. You have this throughout the entire scripture. And this is what we all experienced. God dealt with us. Will you respond? And every one of us that's saved responded at some point, right? We received, we believed. What do I do? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. What do I do? Repent and be baptized, you'll be saved. So that's what we know. That's what the word says. That's what we all experience. And now what are we supposed to do? Does God ever tell us in the word, okay, now you just need to figure out who's elected. Mm, is Camille elect? Is Monica elect? I'm going to discern who's elect, and then whichever one's elect, I'm going to share the gospel. Does the Bible ever tell you to do that? No. We're supposed to go into the world, make disciples. We're supposed to go and preach the gospel. We're supposed to tell everyone the good news, right? Okay, so what's the point? If God has secretly elected certain people, if he has, and I I don't accept that scripturally, but if he has, that's his business. That's got nothing to do with you or me. We don't have to worry about that or think about it because what we do know is we have to respond to the message. What's written in Hebrews 3, quoting Psalm 95? What's the verse in Hebrews 3, quoting Psalm 95? Today, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, right? What's your name? Tony? Toby. All right. Don't harden your heart. What's your name? Stephen. David. Okay. Don't harden your heart, Toby. Don't harden your heart, David. And your name? Ever. Ever. All right. Well, good. We end it with ever. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> there was a gal in the church where we saved, very sweet, loved the Lord named Ever. And it was a nice name. And I haven't run into an Ever in a long time. So God bless you. Thanks. So, so you read the word. I read the word. Mike Brown, don't harden your heart. This is, this is what we know from beginning to end. God's saying, choose. God's saying, turn. God's saying, don't harden your heart. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Where's that? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He'll lift you up. He gives grace to the humble. Where is that? Now, don't make excuses that you're only high school students, because when I was a high school student, I'd memorize 20 verses a day. So don't make excuses. Ah. It was Proverbs 3 quoted in, in James 4 and 1 Peter 5. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He'll give you grace. So throughout the entire Bible, from beginning to end, book after book after book after book, God deals with us. God calls us to respond. If he responds, he says, good. If we don't respond, he's going to judge. So if he has a secret elect people, which again, I don't believe scripturally, but if he has, that's his business. You don't need to worry about it. What you need to do is respond to the Lord do what he's called you to do and preach the gospel and believe that God's going to save and convict and turn hearts. You do what you know how to do. You lean on him to do what you can't do. You pray, you ask God to save, to touch, to turn hearts. You proclaim his word boldly and then people respond or they don't respond and the results are between them and God. Now a Calvinist would say that the door says, whosoever will, Let him come and drink of the water of life freely. Whosoever will, let him come and drink. And when he walks through that door, 
the person that walks through that door, you see written on the, the back of their shirt, elect before the foundation of the world. Even if that was true the way Calvinists believe it, that's not for you to worry about. That's got nothing to do with you. What's written in Deuteronomy 29, 29? Someone's going to know this. Someone's going to know Deuteronomy 29, 29 by heart. If I start it, then I, I can't give away a DVD in good conscience. If I start it, it's so easy. The... Well, I started the... <laughs> I didn't give it away, huh? The... Not sinner. You guys are too sin conscious. I go, and you didn't say savior. You didn't say spirit. You said sinner. No, I'm joking. I'm joking with you. This, uh, all right, who said that? All right, cool. All right, now did you look it up? Did you look it up? Hey, did, did, did you look it up or you guessed it? You looked it up? Okay, well, that's, you all looked it up. All right, that's allowed. You just don't win a DVD, but that's allowed. All right. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. If he's doing all this stuff that my Calvinist friends say he's doing, that's his business. That's not for you to worry about, even think about. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but that which is open and revealed belong to us and our children to do the, the will of God, to keep the law of God, especially as it came to, to the people of Israel in those days. Calvinists believe that God has a secret will and a revealed will. And I don't find that scriptural. Calvinists would say that the revealed will of God is repent, repent, repent. God wants to have mercy on you. All right? You three. Toby, David, never. But Sam and Sally, because we have Billy and Bobby here. I'm going to lose track of the names in a minute here, all right? But that's it's for the moment it's working. So Sam and Sally, I bring the same message to Sam and Sally. Repent, God wants to have mercy on you, but secretly he has predestined them for damnation. So even though the revealed message is repent and God will have mercy on you, the secret message is, you are not among the elect. Now, I'm oversimplifying, but, but what I'm saying is accurate. A Calvinist would say, but those people have chosen damnation. Why did they choose damnation? Because God didn't elect them. And why did Adam sin, according to Calvinists? Because God willed it. Because God set the whole thing up to happen the way it happened. And here's what I'm also telling this person. I'm quoting John 3.16 to them, among other verses, for God so loved the world. And I'm, I'm quoting that to them. I'm telling them, if you'll, if you'll put your trust in Jesus, you'll be saved. But it's actually not true because Jesus didn't die for them because they're not elect. That's a troubling thing to me. That I, I can't really bring that message to them because Jesus didn't die for them because they're not elect. And, and even if they did believe it, if they had the power to believe it, They'd still be damned because Jesus didn't die for them, but they don't even have the power to do it, so I'm asking them to believe something they can't believe and something that's not true anyway. That, to me, is troubling. Now, a Calvinist would say, but if that person does believe it, they'll be saved, but the only way they could believe it is if God gave them the faith to believe it, and if Jesus died for them, the whole thing becomes a big circle. 
John Calvin did teach that there are some who are doomed from the womb. And when I debated my dear friend James White, a man of God, a scholar, a colleague, I've debated rabbis, he's debated Muslim leaders, we're, we're on the front lines together. I had him on my radio show yesterday uh, talking about his new book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran. But when I asked him, is it possible, say a mom has four kids and she raises those kids in the faith, but one of those kids was doomed from the womb by God. No matter what she does, she prays for that kid, she fasts for that kid, she raises that kid in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but it was God's sovereign secret will to damn that child from the womb. Does that woman have to accept that? And basically, the simple answer is yes. You, you can watch the whole debate on, on YouTube and, and see his exact answer, but the simple answer would be yes, that, that it, was, it is to the glory of God that that child will be damned to hell and suffer the judgment of God, and, and her role was basically to bring that child into the world. I absolutely see that as contrary to Scripture. And I found it sad that some folks who were making comments on the YouTube debate had said, well, that was just an emotional ploy to ask about the mother and the baby. Now, that's what's called life. That's what's called love that God puts in our hearts. Those are not emotional ploys. Uh, <clears throat> If you are a Calvinist, then you believe that you are saved and regenerated before you believe. That you have to be born again before you believe. You say, well, that sounds contrary. Of course it's contrary. Of course it's contrary to every scripture that tells us if we respond, we receive eternal life. If we turn, we will be saved. If we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts, we will be saved. The Calvinist says because you were dead in your sin, and incapable of believing, therefore you have to be born again before you can believe. As I looked at these things, as I looked at some of the standard answers that were given by Calvinism over the years, as a Calvinist, I just said this, this is not lining up. I know that there are verses that seem to say, things that would support Calvinism, but when I look at the whole testimony of Scripture, the revelation of who God is, his compassion is over all of his works. He wants all to be saved. Jesus tasted death for every man. He's the, the, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not for ours, only those of the whole world. I realized that I had to squeeze things and twist them to make them fit Scripture, and they were contrary to the overall testimony of the word. Now, I, I want to give you just a, a few specific points, and, and then I, I want to take questions the rest of the time, all right? But first, let me ask you this. Uh, and and I, I'm asking everyone, young and old here, okay? Uh, do any of you know someone that, as far as you know, they were born again, they loved Jesus, they were following the Lord, and they have backslidden and turned their backs on God? Okay, most of the hands are going up here, and if you live long enough, your hands will go up. I'm not talking about someone that one time, you know, you, you forced him to pray a prayer, you know. You're wrestling with him, and you're choking him out. You know, pray a prayer and get saved, and then I'll let you out. No, I'm not talking about some coercion. I'm talking about someone genuinely seemed to be saved, 
genuinely seem to be born again, on fire, in the word, praying, witnessing. My, my best friend that helped lead me to the Lord, before I was saved, I was best man in his wedding. He was best man in my wedding. He's been away from the Lord for over 35 years. We were saved together. We were filled with the Spirit together, spoke in tongues together, went to all night prayer meetings together, witnessed together, loved the Lord together, discussed Scripture together. Now, if he dies in his sin, a Calvinist would say, what? He was never truly saved. Well, then how are you so sure you're saved? In other words, as a Calvinist, I found I had less assurance than as a non-Calvinist. Because here's what Jesus has told me. If I'm one of his sheep, how do I know I'm one of his sheep? Well, I, I want to follow him, right? I want to follow him and do his will. Nobody can pluck me out of his hand. I've got nothing to worry about. I, I fly all the time. I've, I've been overseas on ministry trips, I don't know, 130, 140 times. I've been to, to Italy 21 times. I've been to India 20 times. I've been... You know, many, many countries around the world, spoken hundreds, thousands of times around the nation. So I'm, I'm, I'm up in the air a lot, a lot of 15-hour flights and all-night travel and so on, and I, I don't worry about jumping out of a plane. I, if, 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 if you want to make that salvation, if God has guaranteed that this plane is going to safely take me from here to here, I don't have nightmares I'm going to jump out of the plane. They don't have to strap me down and sedate me. You got this Dr. Brown guy on the plane, hold him down because he's going to try to jump out the emergency. No, why? That's insanity. I never worry about it. In fact, I go to sleep. I sit at my computer, I write. Over a meal, I'll watch a nice movie. And then I go to sleep. And I don't worry about it at all. That's how this was salvation. I, I put myself in God's hands. He's promised to keep me. What do I have to worry about? Zero. Nothing. He's given me promises. He who began the good work in me will bring it to completion. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God, Romans 8. Galatians 4, God's put the spirit of his son in our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. I'm, I'm absolutely secure. The end of Romans 8 makes clear that nothing, life, death, nothing outside of me, no demon, no nothing can separate me from the love of God and Jesus. Zero. I got nothing to worry about. Now, what if, God forbid, I turn my back on God, one of my trips to India, looking at those idols in the temple, looking at the statues of Krishna and these different ones and the monkey god and stuff, I thought, you know, this is really true. This Jesus stuff is just not true. I'm going to convert to Hinduism. I'm going to convert to Hinduism and worship these many different ex expressions of God. And I'm going to be become a Hindu and burn all the books I wrote about Jesus and burn all the debates I had with the rabbis and so on. At that point, I should be very scared. At that point, I don't have any promise to keep me. Because the promises are to who? The sheep. Jesus says, my sheep know me. They know my voice and they follow me. Right? So if at some point I'm trying to break the door open on that flight overseas and jump out and kill myself, that's where the danger is. But the promises are to God's people. You've committed your life to the Lord. He's promised to keep you. You don't have to worry about it. I never, ever, ever worry about losing my salvation. It doesn't dawn on me to worry about it any more than I, I worried about... Uh, driving into the parking lot and running over kids before I got here. Well, I'm driving. I think I'm just going to kill them. No, I mean, who, who thinks like that? That's insanity. But if you start turning away, you know, I think I'm tired of my wife. I think I'm going to marry this one and run off and commit adultery, and I think I'm going to change religions and so on. At that point, you don't have promises. The only promise you have is if you turn back, God will have mercy on you.
But see, as a Calvinist, you know that you know that you know that you're saved, right? But your friend knew that he knew that he was saved, and she knew that she knew that she was saved, and she fell away, and he fell away. So how do you know that you, What's the ultimate assurance as a Calvinist? The ultimate absolute assurance as a Calvinist that you're saved? Well, yeah, but how do you know God elected you? Maybe you deceive yourself. I mean, you can believe it, you can, but what's the ultimate way that you know that you know? You make it to the end. Right, that's the ultimate way. So I contend that you actually have less assurance as a Calvinist than you do as an Arminian. Because you're not trying to figure out if God elect me or not, because you know. He said, believe, you believe, you put your trust in him, and he keeps his word. Simple. So let me just give you a few points real, real quick, and then I want to take your questions. Let me ask this first. How many have questions about scripture or these doctrines that you'd like to ask? Just raise your hand. All right, so there are a few. Uh, Okay, fine. Let me just give you these points very quickly. Uh, Someone have the time. I didn't bring my watch with me. It's it's 10.50. Okay, thank you. Let me make these points very quickly. I've got tons of scripture for each of them. Uh, This is all being recorded, so if you want to write it down, fine, but don't don't worry about it. And then I want to take your questions, okay? Okay. Number one, it's absolutely clear from the word that there are many things that people do that grieve God and are contrary to his will and desire. He certainly did not ordain them. Give me an example of something in the Bible that happened where God was grieved over it or upset over it and said, or said, I'm not happy with this, I don't like this. Give me an example. Okay, so, so in Exodus, the 32nd chapter, Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai after the giving of the Ten Commandments. The children of Israel commit idolatry, and, and it, it seems from the text as well, immorality. Well, hang on. There you go. Well, just, can, can we throw this? Yeah, might as well. Whoops. Sorry. Ooh, sorry. Sorry. That's, I wasn't... I guess that move wasn't properly predestined. I'm, I'm sorry. No, I'm just, I'm just joking with you. <clears throat> okay, what, is, what, is, what does an Arminian say after tripping and almost falling down the steps? He says, next time, I'm going to have to be more careful. What does a Calvinist say? I'm, not, I'm glad that's over with. Okay, I mean, it's slightly exaggerated. Okay, here, we try, try a different one. Try, try a different there's a, there's a Christian fellowship at, at somebody's home one night. Everybody's hanging out, having a nice time together. And they get into a heated discussion about Calvinism versus Arminianism. And they end up having a split. And 15 people over here is the Calvinist group. And 15 people over here are the Arminian group. But there's one person, he can't decide what he believes. So he figures, well... Everybody's completely divided. They're in one room. They're in the other room. I think I'll go over to the Calvinist group. So he goes over to the Calvinist group, and they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you join our group, why are you coming? He said, I came of my own free will. They said, free will? Go to the Arminians. <laughs> so he oh, gosh. He goes over to the Arminians, and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you join our group, why are you coming? He goes, I was sent. They go, sent? Go over to the Calvinists. Anyway, the guys left out. Okay. 
All right, throughout the Bible, you have examples of people doing things and God is angry and upset with them. At the flood in Genesis 6, God is grieved over human sin. What does that tell you? If God is grieved with it, God is angry over it, if God says, I never intended this, I never desired it, what does that tell you? Humans had a choice, exactly. And what else does it tell you about God's end of it? Excuse me? It wasn't as well. No, he did not set it up. A Calvinist would have to say that they were actually doing his will in rebellion, doing his secret will, while he was saying, I am absolutely against that. In other words, a Calvinist would have to say, and would say, a consistent Calvinist, that Adam sinned because God ordained it before the foundation of the world. I would say Adam sinned because God gave him free will. Did God know what he would do in advance? Yes. Did God create the world knowing what would happen? Yes. Did he choose to create anyway? Yes. But he did it in such a way where it was based on love and based on a choice that we could make. I receive your love. I reject your love. You say, isn't that self-salvation? No, self-salvation is I save myself. Let me ask you a question. You ever seen on the news somebody rescued out of a fire? Do you ever see them... A fireman comes breaking in there, right? There's somebody terrified. They're under the bed. The fireman grabs them, pulls them out the window, carries them on their back. Do you ever hear the person boasting? And I I got on that fireman's back. (laughs) Let me tell you, I held on tight. They're like, man, I was dying. I was so scared. I was was saying, mommy, mommy, I thought it was over. And that fireman carried me out. I said, oh, what's his name? I got to thank him. It never dawned on me when I got saved because I responded to God's offer that when Jesus paid for my sins and died for me, there's nothing I could do to save myself. And he said, receive this gift. And I said, yes, Lord, have mercy on me. It never dawned on me that I could boast about that. I said, yes, I believed. I saved myself. What kind of nonsense is that? That's a projection that none of us would ever think or believe. So that's the first thing. It's, it's absolutely clear from the word that there are many things that people do that grieve God and are contrary to his will and desire. He certainly didn't ordain them. Here's the second thing. Throughout the word, he calls us to make choices, commending those who trust and obey him, like Abraham, whom he calls his friend in Isaiah 48, 41, and condemning those who refuse his grace. This is throughout the word. Why does Jesus weep over Jerusalem in Matthew 23 and Luke 13? What does he say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stole those sent to you. What does he say? How often I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you, okay, I'll give you the first word, last word, you, blank, willing. What's the middle word? Weren't. I really wanted to do this for you. I wanted to bless you. I wanted to preserve you. I wanted to keep you. Jesus saying this, and he's saying it as he's been doing it through the centuries for Jerusalem and calling to repentance, calling the leaders to repent. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. Therefore, your house has left you desolate. Therefore, judgment is coming. What's he going to say 
to those who have obeyed him on that day. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Good job. Good job. See, I urged you earlier, Tony, David, Toby, David, I got the name still, right? Hang on. Sam, Sally, Billy, Bob, Monica, Camille. All right, still there. Good. So I urged you earlier, don't harden your heart, and you didn't harden your heart, and you've been running for Jesus, and you've lived it out, and you've been world changers. Well done. Get your award. There have been choices made, good or bad. Jeremiah 18 talks about the potter, right? And a lot of Calvinists say, hey, God's the potter, we're just the clay. Images from Isaiah 45 and and Romans 9. He's the potter, we're the clay. He can do whatever he wants. It's true. Absolutely true. Whatever God wants, he can do. He's God. And he wants people to come into a relationship with him without being coerced. He wants people to come into a relationship with him choosing it. How? By his grace. We can't do it on our own. When he touches us, we have the power to respond yes or no. So what does it say in Jeremiah 18 when God says, I'm the potter? This is what he says. I decide I'm going to bless a nation, and that nation does evil. Instead of blessing them, I'm going to judge them. I decide I'm going to judge a nation. That nation turns from sin and does good. I'm going to bless them. So as the potter, he sets it up that he is going to respond to our repentance or our sin. Again, this is over and over through the scriptures. Number three, throughout the word, God makes clear that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but desires that they would repent and live. If God chose Billy for salvation and passed by Bobby, by his choice, then can I say God really desires for Bobby to be saved? No, because if he really desired it, he would do it, yes? Calvinists would say God saves whom he wants to save and damns whom he wants to damn. And he's perfectly right in doing it because we all deserve damnation. This would be a simple statement. Over and over, Ezekiel 18, is it my desire that a wicked person should die, says the Lord? Is it rather that he shall turn back from his ways and live? Therefore, I'll judge you, house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed. Make yourselves a new heart, new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? If I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Over and over and over. John Calvin said this. God arranges all things by his sovereign counsel in such a way that individuals are born who are doomed from the womb to certain death and are to glorify him by their destruction. That's absolutely unscriptural. You say, but John Calvin. Yeah, well, there are plenty of theologians who disagree with John Calvin. And who's Mike Brown? Who's John Calvin? Who's you? Who's me? We're going to submit to Jesus and and what the Word says. You say, what about Pharaoh? Do a careful study of Ezekiel, of, of Exodus, starting in the third chapter. Pharaoh hardens his heart repeatedly. And then God progressively makes his heart harder. In other words... God stiffens him in his resolve. The first word that's used in Hebrew, lechazek, means to make strong, to strengthen. 
Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. Pharaoh first says, I'm not going to let you go. God says, I'm going to harden your heart. You want to sin, you want to resist, I'm going to strengthen your resolve. You want to say no to God, I'm going to strengthen your resolve to say no. Then lechabed, to make heavy, before it it gets to the final verb, meaning to make hard or harsh. God's desire for every human being is that they turn and live. Think of this for a second. Matthew 7, beginning verse 7, Ask and it shall be given you, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, to him who knocks the door is open. Then he says, what man is there of you? If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a snake. Daddy, could we go get ice cream tonight? You bet. Let's go to the garbage dump. Jesus is saying, if, if you, being good, know how to give, excuse me, if you being evil, Matthew 7, 11, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask? In other words, we understand what it is to love all people. We're commanded to forgive. We're commanded to, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who persecute us. We're called to desire the salvation of every human being, Correct? Well, my sister is really mean, so I hope she's not elect. No. You know, your mother or father could say, God loves your sister, and Jesus died for your sister. No, no, if you're Calvinist, maybe God doesn't love your sister the same way, and maybe Jesus didn't die for your sister the same way. Why are we commanded to love everyone in that way and desire to see the salvation of every person where God does not? It's a fair question, isn't it? One of my best friends is, is an Indian, Yesu Padam, a former untouchable, alcoholic, violent communist before he got saved. When he was 11 years old, he, he signed his name in blood to become, his own blood to become a communist. Maoist, activist, radical. Got radically saved in his mid-20s when Jesus appeared to him. Uh, he's been stoned for his faith. You can still see the, the scar in his head and the broken finger from when he was stoned for, for preaching. Uh, he and I have preached together in very dangerous settings and had the meeting take over by Hindu radicals with knives and razor blades in their hands. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Some of the people he sent out on the field have been killed for their faith. People I've laid hands on and we've sent out together, come back a couple years later and literally washed the feet of the martyr's widow. And it's pretty intense. This is part of my life. And some brothers he was working with from the States were Calvinists and wanted to teach Calvinism to his church planters. They planted about 1,500 churches in the unreached regions. And my friend said to him, if you're telling me that Jesus did not make a way for every one of those people to be saved, if you're telling me that, that Jesus only died for some and not for others, he said, you're not teaching that here. And he knows what's in his heart, a burden to see everyone in his nation saved. In the same way, the most natural reading of 1 Timothy 2, that God wants all men to be saved, the most natural reading of 2 Peter 3, that God doesn't want that any should perish, the most natural reading of Ezekiel 18, that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but desires rather that they turn and live. The most natural reading of Hebrews 2, that Jesus tasted death for every man. The most natural reading of John 3.16 is that God hearts, God's heart beats for the salvation of every human being. 
And come on, when you got saved, you wanted to tell everyone about Jesus. There was no thought in your mind that, well, some are elect and some aren't. It's like, I got to tell everybody about Jesus. And your heart burns to see them saved. And you would do whatever you possibly could to save them. And yet, supposedly, God, who had the power to save everyone, chose only to save some. How then can we reflect his heart? How can our heart have more mercy and compassion than his? Throughout the word, God expresses his desire for his creation to know him. You know, there are times when God says, if only, if only you'd listened. I really wanted to bless you. If only you, you, I I wanted to bless you. Several verses say this plainly. Here's the summary of the message. I was willing and you were not. What does God say in Isaiah 65? All day long I stretched out my hands through disobedient, rebellious people. I was saying, come, come, come. And people rebelled. Calvinists would say they rebelled because God ordained them to rebel. They rebelled because God did not give them the, the means and the ability to repent and to believe. So Jesus comes into the world as the full expression of the Father and sheds his blood for the entire world. Scripture after scripture telling us the same thing. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Titus 2. False prophets and false teachers who turned against God were some of those who were bought by the blood of Jesus. When Paul's witnessing to Agrippa, what's he say? I wish everybody would believe. I want everybody to believe. I, I want everyone to be just like me except not be in these chains as a prisoner as I am. And yet, according to Calvinists, that's not God's heart. Paul had a heart for everyone to be saved. God had a heart only for some to be saved, even though he had the power to save everyone. Why? Because some will be glorified. Some will glorify God by going to hell, and that's their destiny. They were created for that purpose, to glorify God by being damned forever. What we do see is that before the foundation of the world, God determines, I will have a people. I will have a people, how? In my son. That's how we are elect before the foundation of the world. He chose out a people, and because he has perfect knowledge of all things, he knows exactly who will be saved and who will not. 2 Peter 1 says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So this is in harmony with everything he knows and foresees. And he chooses a people in his son. And he destines his people from here to there in his son. And all those who will be in his son will enjoy that destiny. So we are in that sense in Jesus predestined. Outside of Jesus, we're not predestined. Once we got on this boat, once we get on this plane, we're now predestined and it will take us to a glorious final destiny. And nobody can stop that from happening because God has set it up. It's interesting when you read about the elect in salvation, it's plural, we, us, because it's a people in Jesus, each known individually to God, but it's a people in Jesus. When it comes to us individually, what does it say like in Colossians, the first chapter? God can present you holy, blameless in his sight. And then there's one big word. It's a two-letter word. It's a big word, and it's what God says to us. It's a two-letter word. It's a big word. It's an important word. To, uh, what? If. All right, who said if? Who said if? 
All right, so you're reluctant to raise your hand because you got gray hair. So what you just did is you stopped somebody from winning the... <laughs> Don't worry, I'm just messing with you. All right, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you one more chance to get this. Uh, the promise is, yeah, God will present you blameless if you continue in the faith. If. That's throughout the word. If. Hebrews 3, we we are partakers of Messiah if we continue in the faith. So there's no sense of it's just unconditional or it just happens. As far as we're concerned, we have responsibilities. So I end here and then I want to take your questions. And and I've, I've tried to explain certain things. Whoops. Uh, keep your interest along the way and make you understand that I'm not out to bash my Calvinistic friends, but just explain some simple reasons why for me it's impossible to be a Calvinist and to follow the God of Scripture at the same time. But I just want to come back to the simple point. Please tell me on a practical level in your life how it helps you to know that there are some people chosen by God before the salvation of the world to salvation and some to damnation, and we have no idea who's who. How does that help you in a practical way in your own life? Here, let's make it more vivid. Can I give you a kind of negative, scary illustration? Is that okay? Yeah, I mean, I'm not like, going to spook you. I'm not going to... Drop down here and suddenly have this mask on or something, all right? Okay, let's just say it was predetermined by God before today began that half the people in here would die in an earthquake and half the people in here would escape. And you don't know where the earthquake's going to take place, how it's going to take place, when, but it just may happen. And that would that... Is that knowledge going to help you? There's, there's nothing you can do to, to change it. It's not like you can say, well, I'm going to get up in a plane then because if I'm on a plane, I can't get in an earthquake because you don't know what's going to happen. Something could happen with the plane and that you don't know. Would that help you? Would that help your life? No. If I said there's real danger of an earthquake coming in the following regions and the way to avoid the earthquake is to get into certain safe basements uh, so when you hear some of these warning signs, head for the base. That would help you, correct? Okay. What I'm saying is, what's happening behind the scenes? My dear Calvinist friends try to figure the thing out. Look, I'm into intellectual things. I've written 22 books. I've got a, a PhD. I get involved in these esoteric debates. I've written a commentary on Jeremiah. I'm working on a commentary on Job. I'm into the intellectual stuff, okay? But... There are things that we don't have to worry about, we're not supposed to worry about, because it's God's business. And I'm not going to understand it anyway. Here, look. I studied ancient Semitic languages. How many of you know what Ugaritic is? Okay. How many of you can tell me about the dispute about Ugaritic that took place between Ignaz Gelb and Moshe Held as to whether it was a Canaanite language or not. Okay, the more I talk, the more confused you're going to get, right? Now look, there are areas you may know about, I'm serious, that I don't know about. And the more you explain, the more lost I get. 
That's just little human beings. What makes us think that we're, we can understand everything God does and says? What we do have is what's written here, and this is telling us how to live and what to do. And what I often find over a period of years is folks who get caught up in Calvinism are more caught up with doctrine and theology than with practical going and doing it. Now, I have friends that are Calvinists and they're evangelists and missionaries. But I work with people all around the world and the vast, 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 vast majority of people getting saved and going out and reaching the lost around the world are not Calvinists. And what happens is once they, they're, they're in the Lord for a while and once they're getting more established and they want to kind of show that they're intellectual and theological, they start to study all these things more and they get caught up in them more. And, and, and they pray less, and they win, the, they win the loss less, and they witness less, but they're really into these glorious orthodox doctrines. So that's the other thing to do. If you're entertaining some of this stuff, show me your burden for the lost. Show me, show me your, your burden in fasting and prayer. Show me the, the passion that you have to go out and make a difference for Jesus. Show me that Jesus, not doctrine, is central to you, and keep burning bright for the next 20, 30 years. Eh, that's not going to concern me that we believe differently. But I end with this, and I'll take your questions. I did a talk for about, I don't know, 500, 20, 30, 20s and 30s, you know, college career age. Something called Charlotte One, where I live now in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's a unity event, city unity event, where people come together. So I was going to go and speak to them, and, and I was asked to do a talk on Calvinism and Arminianism. And because this was a citywide unity event, I was going to first passionately preach one of them, Calvinism, and then stop, and then passionately preach the other. And, and you had to guess which one I actually believed. So, I mean, I went for it. I forget which one I did first, but this is why Calvinism is true, and this is what the Word says, and I quoted all these verses and went for it, and then I stopped halfway through. And then, man, I preached Arminianism passionately, and this is why it's true, and this is why Calvinism can't be true. And then I asked, how many think I'm a Calvinist? How many think I'm Arminian? And it was, I don't know, maybe two-thirds got it right. But, but a full one-third thought I was a committed Calvinist because I presented it so passionately. And one woman came up to me afterwards. She said, you are a Calvinist. I said, no, really. I said, I was for five years, and I'm sympathetic to the arguments, but I'm not sure. I'm
You see. Just not unloving or loving. Okay? How many felt that was loving? Okay. So a good majority of hands, either loving or neither. The, the fact is, throughout, I spoke as well as I could of Calvinists, and even though my goal in being here was to explain why it was false, I kept making positive reference to examples. Uh, of, so, you know, this is all recorded. Listen, listen back. Um, because number one, from my heart, I'm not a Calvinist basher. And, and number two, you know, I'm, I'm on national radio five days a week, two hours a day in the midst of all kinds of controversies, and I always try to treat people graciously. Uh, even making reference to James White repeatedly as, as, a, as a dear friend and, and colleague is, is from the heart. And even trying to represent things in a positive way, saying a Calvinist wouldn't say it like that. Um, but, but the account here... Uh, God kept speaking until Samuel got it right and responded, and then God blessed him for responding, and then when he heard the revelation, he declared it in contrast with Eli's sons who didn't, who didn't respond and who didn't hear rebuke, even when, when, when God sent rebuke. You have in Scripture God saying, I've gone to you over and over and over and over. Book of Jeremiah, God says, the way he, he, he speaks in human terms, I rose early and sent the prophets over and over and over and over, but you wouldn't listen. So God speaks over and over. Sometimes people listen, sometimes they don't. If we listen, he says, good job. If we don't listen, he says, I, I warned you. I warned you. Now, by the way, the reason I asked if others felt I was unloving was not to, not to put you on the spot, but to honestly see other perception. If a lot of hands went up, then that would mean to me that, that I didn't present it the way I wanted to, okay? But, but thanks, and I, I know you weren't challenging me. I appreciate you being honest. Okay, uh, question... All right, we'll go right here, and then we'll move up front. Yes, sir. Um, I have heard in the past uh, many Arminians be very negative towards Calvinism. Some of them have even branded it as a form of heresy. Uh huh. And I have always heard Calvinists be very logical, very thinking about things. Hang on. Oh, okay. All right, go ahead. I've heard them be very logical, very forthcoming. They want to talk about things. They don't just outright say, oh, this is heresy. They say, okay, let's talk down. Let's sit. Let's talk about it. But I've heard many Arminius just go at them and say, without any form of conversation, heretic. In my personal view, that seems very hypocritical. Mm -hmm. And I just guess I want to know, what is your opinion about that? I totally agree with you. It's completely hypocritical. What's funny, though, is stick around, and you'll find at least as much bashing on the Calvinist side. Uh, you, you will find constant boasting that this is the orthodox doctrine, that anyone who doesn't hold to it is not orthodox, that these are the doctrines of grace, and if you don't hold to it, you don't believe in grace. Uh, you, you will find... I, I've talked to Calvinist leader and said, why are you guys so arrogant? He said, it's a problem. It's a problem. So actually... Uh, let me ask this. In your circles, in your upbringing, have you been around more Arminians or more Calvinists? More Arminians. Okay. That's why you've heard Arminians bashing Calvinism. Hang out in the other circles. You'll hear it. It stinks on both sides. It's immature on both sides. So to the extent 
people just brand this as heresy or going to bash when you've, got, when you've got men and women of God who are Calvinists and there are many scriptures that they hold to, you know, that they base their view on. We're going to bash that. That's, that's immature and it's unacceptable. Uh, I would just say, though, that from my vantage point in both worlds, I hear far more bashing here. Let me ask this. Who would you say is more doctrinally conscious and making a bigger issue of doctrinal accuracy? Calvinists or Arminians? Probably Calvinists. I'd agree with you. Therefore, you'll actually hear more bashing of, of Arminians in Calvinist circles. And if you'll read the books, read the literature, you'll see it constantly. But it shouldn't exist. That's one thing Dr. White and I just wanted to do. When we were going to debate, uh, I'm, I'm charismatic Pentecostal. He's cessationist. He doesn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit for today. We probably have different views on the destiny of Israel. Uh, and, and he's a passionate Calvinist, and I'm passionately not a Calvinist. Uh, but we wanted to model in our debate how to honor one another as men of God, how to show unity in the body. Uh, you know, George Whitfield and, and John Wesley, the accounts, I've, I've heard about both of them. Um, but I've heard that both said about the other, because the followers split, Wesley and Whitfield... Uh, Reconciled, but their followers stayed separate. You know, Wesley the Arminian and, and, and Whitfield the Calvinist. All right, who can tell me when George Whitfield lived? 1714 to? 1892. That's a long life. That's really long. But good for, thanks for guessing. Thanks for guessing. 1714 to 1770. And John Wesley lived from 1703 to? 1791, and then who was born in 1792? 1792, and he died in 1875. No, she was, yeah, that was not a serious guess. Tell you what, because you guessed, even though you're off for like 100 years, there you go. There you go. But, but, but anyway... So, so let me just say this. I 100% affirm what you're saying is absolutely wrong. I'm simply saying you'll see it on both sides. You'll, you'll see a different approach. You'll see this arrogant looking down your nose at these, you know, wrong people who don't hold to the doctrines of grace and so on and so forth on the Calvinist side. And then you'll hear a caricature of Arminians, uh, of Calvinists from the Arminian side. So we have to step higher. What we have to do is model something better and say, hey, we're, we're both brothers and sisters in Jesus. We both have the same goal. We're both doing the same things. You know, someone says, you, you, you pray like a Calvinist. Oh, God, only you can save. And then you work like an Arminian. I got to reach everybody. But the story is told, and I've heard it both about Whitfield and about Wesley. So who was born in 1792 and died in 1875? No, no, Whitfield was 1714 to 1770. Wesley, 1703 to 1791. But who was born in one year after, one year after, Wesley died, and then he died in 1875. His initials are CGF. CGF. Hey, Leslie, who's in charge of, of church history here? No, I'm, I'm joking. Oh, okay. Charles Grandison Finney. Just trying to put chronology. You said that? Oh, man. See? Okay. But the question was asked, 
to Whitfield and to Wesley. When you die, you know, whoever dies first, do you expect to see him in heaven? George Whitfield, you're a Calvinist. When you die, do you expect to see John Wesley in heaven? He's an Arminian. Same question was asked to Wesley as I, as I read the reports. Do you expect to see him in heaven? He said, oh, no, I won't see him in heaven. The guy said, oh, good, good, because I don't think I'm going to see him in heaven either. And then Whitfield said, he'll be way too close to the throne of God for me to ever see. That's the attitude we need to have. If someone's a brother or sister, even if we disagree doctrinally, you honor them above yourself. You honor them above yourself, learn what you can from them, walk in grace towards them, and then hold to what you hold to. Uh, yes, ma'am. Ever. See? Still got the name here. Um, you mentioned something about the board again uh, doctrine and how Calvinists think, okay, um, I don't remember exactly what you said. You have said. to be born again first, then you believe. Right. Because you're dead in your sin, a dead person is incapable of believing, so first you're born again, and then you're regenerated. As a regenerated person, you then believe. Okay, so is that, like that phrase born again, is that just referred to, to the Calvinist belief? Or is that is like is it acceptable to say that even if you're not a Calvinist? Because I've heard it said in different like in the Iranian circles as well. So Oh yeah, yeah. We all believe in that. We all believe in the new birth. We all believe in John chapter three, verse three and verse five. Unless someone's born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Born again, born from above, born anew, that, that we must be born again. We all agree it's only by grace. We all agree we can't save ourselves. But a Calvinist would say you're first born again and then you believe because you're dead in your sins, which again, sounds very contradictory. We would say that by believing, you're born again. You say, well, how do you believe? Because God gives you the grace to believe. All right? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. And then we'll, we'll make sure everyone has a, a chance to ask once before we let others ask twice. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, this is, I, I don't know if it's based on your opinion, but um, so you said before how um, when, you, when you have more of the Arminian, um, views, it's more of a, a heart thing, and then when you move on, on the other side of the spectrum, it's more of an intellectual... Yeah, that's what happened in my life, and I've seen it happen in others. It's not the rule, but that's what happened in my own life, and I've seen it happen in other cases. Yeah. Um, why do you think that is that most, or the majority of those who are Calvinists are more of intellectual, and those who are Arminian are more... Why do you think it's not that the balance? Right, it's, it's a great question, and, and let, me, let me first say that I love God with, with all my heart and all my mind. Or hang on, that's my constant desire. I'm sure I fall short, all right? But I, I never feel a contradiction between my head and my heart. I haven't for decades. There was a time when I did, okay? But I haven't for decades. Um, and, and I'll answer you very specifically in a second. Uh, between John Wesley and George Whitfield, who was the greater intellectual and academic? John Wesley, John Wesley, absolutely brilliant thinker. Uh, he wrote whole books on logic. Uh, he wrote grammars of the biblical languages. So uh, Whitfield, you could say, was more of the heart guy, but he was the Calvinist. So I, 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 I'm, I made a statement about me and some people, but it's important we don't make a caricature, right, ba based on that. Uh, but, but there's truth to it, so I'll come back. Um, who was the most influential Christian writer of the 20th century? Probably had the... C.S. Lewis. All right. C.S. Lewis. Uh, and C.S. Lewis was brilliant. One of the great Christian thinkers. Was C.S. Lewis a Calvinist or Arminian? 
Armenian. Okay, um, who is, if, if, if the atheist Richard Dawkins is ducking anybody in a debate, refusing to debate anybody out there today uh, on the Christian side, who is it? William Lane Craig. You know, another colleague, another apologist colleague of mine. William Lane Craig. Is William Lane Craig a Calvinist or Arminian? Oh, he's not a Calvinist. He's absolutely not a Calvinist. Yeah, I mean, be far more Arminian. Not everyone fits into specific roles. So these are brilliant guys, and they're, and they're Calvinists. Um, some of the greatest missionaries who've ever lived, some of the greatest revivalists who've ever lived, have been Calvinists. But from my own experience, there, there are two things that happen, all right? Uh, one is there is this appeal to being sophisticated and being correct, okay? Uh, what's your name, sir? Benjamin. You mentioned that it's your, your impression was that Calvinists were more willing to sit and think through the doctrines and work them through. There, there's more an imp- of an impression that the Calvinists, they're writing the systematic theologies, they're writing the commentaries, they're the thinkers, you know. And so you're saved, you love Jesus, you're on fire, but now you, you, you kind of, you know, the world is mocking you and, and you, you want to have some sophistication to your faith and you want to say, hey, I'm a, th- I'm a thoughtful kind of person too. And it seems... That, that that's the direction it often goes. Um, a desire for intellectual sophistication or something like that. The other thing is this, that my own opinion, and, and again, this is, I'm not judging anyone else. My own opinion is if we are really engaged in the Great Commission, burning day and night to win the lost and make disciples and touch a hurting and dying world, we are more practical than theological. All right? So, you know, we, we got, you want to debate election predestination, fine. I, I got three teen, teenage moms right here that need help. And, and one of their kids is, is, is born, you know, uh, crack addicted. And we got to help them. So, again, I'm not saying that there's a contrast. And there are Calvinists who are at work in the inner city. But my general argument would be, that the more that we're involved in actually going and doing the work, the less that we are kind of caught up in thinking through the more mystical, behind-the-scenes things. Because ultimately, look, when you're trying to feed the poor, when you're you're trying to stand for pro-life, when I'm trying to stand to uphold the meaning of marriage in male and female, right? When, When... when I'm trying to win Jewish, you know, Orthodox Jewish people and, and answer the rabbis and so on, it doesn't matter who got elected or who not. I don't know any of that. That's his business. What I know is here's a need. I got to help. And a Calvinist who loves Jesus, they want to meet that need too. So when is it? Like I, I just taught in Hong Kong in January. And uh, I, I taught Chinese pastors, so mainland Chinese pastors in the persecuted church were able to get out come to Hong Kong, which is part of China now, and I I taught the book of Jeremiah to them for a week. And one guy was telling me that the house church movement, where about 100 million Chinese have come to faith, you know, under communism, under persecution, uh, is largely Arminian, charismatic, Pentecostal signs and wonders. But the churches that are in the cities that are getting more established where there's less persecution are becoming Calvinistic. This is what he just told me. That makes sense to me. Because... There's a certain sophistication and a certain settled, and now you start to go the more intellectual route, and it leads in that direction. 
So you may be a Calvinist, passionate for Jesus. You may be Arminian and absolutely brilliant intellectually. You, can, you know, I don't want to make that dichotomy. But in my own life, it's what happened. I started to get exposed more to intellectualism. The passion and fire was burning less brightly in my heart. And uh, it got me thinking more about these things. And I, I honestly don't believe that when you are absolutely day and night pouring out in the front lines into a hurting and dying world, that these things will matter to you that much in terms of making a decision on. But thanks for the question again. I don't want to stereotype, but that's just my own experience and observation. Yes, ma'am. I'm a Pentecostal. Is that the same thing as Arminianism? Um, Okay. First, that explains why you thought George Whitfield was born in 1714 and died in 1892, because all things are possible with God. Right? And as a Pentecostal, God's our healer, and he's the strength of our lives, and so on. Um, okay, seri- seriously, most Pentecostals are Arminians. But an Arminian is, is believing in terms of, of how people are saved, and does God choose people to be saved or not, be, you know, etc. Pentecostal has to do with the gifts and power of the Spirit. So Pentecostal believes that speaking in tongues and the gifts of the Spirit, that's for today. Right, what happened at Pentecost continues for today. So we are Pentecostal, we're charismatic, we believe in divine healing and driving out demons and speaking in tongues and prophecy. That's for today. That's what this church would believe. And the vast majority of Pentecostals worldwide are Arminians. Uh, you have some who are not, but the vast majority are. Now that's also something else that bothered me when I was a Calvinist. All the major Calvinist publishers were Pentecostal charismatic bashers. All of them. Every one of them had books trashing tongues and trashing the gifts of the Spirit and trashing miracles for today. And it's very, very rare that you'll ever see someone become a Calvinist and as a Calvinist become more Pentecostal, more charismatic. You'll almost always see the reverse trend. That's another question. Why? Why does that happen? Every mass evangelist I know in the world today, people that are preaching to to millions and millions, and then all the people that I personally work with that are aggressive church planters, you know, and, and really seeing the lost radically saved and signs and wonders, they're all Arminians, for whatever it's worth. Okay, question, any, any young person question? Uh, before we, we have someone ask twice, I want to give everyone a, an opportunity to ask once. Um, it was like two questions. One was just a clarifying one. Yeah, Okay. please. Uh, um, one, uh, I think you had said before that you know William Lane Craig. Is that true? Like, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know him, like, pretty well? No. Um, okay. No, here, here's the deal. Um, because I'm an apologist, I mean, that's par- part of what I do. Uh, everyone familiar with the term apologist? What verse does it come from? It's a Greek 15? word with apologia. It's first, first... Peter 3.15? First Peter 3.15. Nailed it. All right. First Peter 3.15, um, where, where Peter says that we should have an answer for everyone, that there should be a defense of the faith. The words used, you know, Paul uses it like Philippians 1, defense of the faith. But it's not apologizing. Oh, I'm really sorry I believe in Jesus because it's kind of dumb. I apologize that I believe. No, no. It's the defense of the faith, which most all you know, but just... So that's part of what I do, Jewish apologetics and apologetics on homosexual issues and, and some other things. 
So I'll, I'll speak at conventions with other apologists. Uh, I'll teach at different seminaries that do apologetics. So in those circles, our paths have crossed. You know, we've talked briefly. He, he knows of my Jewish apologetics work and things like that. And of course, I know of his work. But there are others that I know, you know, really well, like, like James White and others we're close with. But we'll be at these apologetics conferences. I just had Norm Geisler on, on, on my show. Um, when? Last? Tuesday. Yeah, it's, life's busy. I had him on Tuesday. He's, he's in his 80s and is absolutely brilliant, philo you know, philosopher, apologist. Not a Calvinist either, by the way. But go ahead. Okay. Did, then, you, uh, did you want me to get a message to William Lane Craig for you? Well, that would be that cool. You said hi? Yeah, sure, okay, what, what's your name? JP. JP, all right. <laughs> Next time okay. I see him, I'll tell him JP said hi with appreciation. Yeah, he, he's an extraordinary guy, though. Yeah, go ahead. Um, and the second one was kind of like a multi-part question. Yeah. Uh, ah, so it's two questions, but the second is multi-part. Kind of, yeah. That's so like when the pastor tricks you while preaching. I've got a four-point message, but the fourth point has eight points. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, okay, the first question kind of is like, um, is God in control of everything? Mm -hmm. And if he is, then, then how does he not choose whether we're saved or not? Uh -huh. And then if he's not in control of everything, how does that still make him God? Ah, yeah. So it's, it's a great question. One of my grads posted on Facebook the other day that his five-year-old son asked him out of the blue the other day, but totally seriously, if God is God, can he turn himself into the smallest midget ever? <laughs> Five years old. Uh, <clears throat> so is God in control? Uh, if he is, then how uh, is he not choosing who's saved? If he's not in control, how is he God? So the real question is, what does it mean to be in control? A teacher's teaching a class. Is that teacher in control of the class? Yes. Does that teacher predetermine what the student's grades are? No. But the teacher's in control. So if God is in control in the sense of he determines everything that happens, then why is he grieved over certain things and pleased over others? Why does he say, I really wanted this, but you chose the other? All right? Um, now, Romans 9 says if God wanted to set it up like that, he can. It's not for us to judge. Yeah, we... It's not for us to tell him what to do or how to do it, but Romans 9, you have to keep going to the end of the discussion, Romans 11, which ends with God has bound all men over to unbelief that he may have mercy on all. So that's how it is. His desire is to have mercy on all, right? He has compassion on whom he has compassion. Who is it? Ultimately, everybody. He wants everyone to turn. So it says in Ephesians 1 that God is working out everything according to the purpose of his will. Mean, oh, by, by the way, any of you that got the debate that I, that I gave it away, if you don't want it, you can sell it to somebody. You know, just don't use the money for something sinful, but do what you want to do with it, all right? Okay, so God works out everything according to the purpose of his will. So God is accomplishing his will in the midst of this, all right? But he's accomplishing it through human sin. Like he says to Israel, all day long I held out my hands to a disobedient, rebellious people. So I said, come, they didn't come. So he judged them. So he carries out his will, which is he's going to give you an opportunity to believe or not. And based on your response, he's going to reward you or punish you. And regardless of whether you respond or not, he's going to get his will done. So if this particular person in class is going to act up a certain way, 
It may seem like for a moment I was out of control, but I'm actually using that now to illustrate a point. So I didn't make you do it, but your doing it is going to cause my purposes to come to pass. So many times what looks like the worst thing is the best thing. So Joseph being sold into slavery, Joseph says it wasn't you who did it, God did it. But they made choices, and they suffered for those choices, and yet God had a plan in it. So God carries out his plan from beginning to end, and nothing can stop it. But he didn't set it up like chess pieces that he pre-programmed. He set it up like chess pieces with free will, and at the end of the story, his will is done. To me, that takes greater sovereignty and greater wisdom. To me, it takes only God that can set things up in such a way that people can say yes or no and respond, and yet at the end, he's gotten something glorious out of it, something beautiful out of it. And you say, well, if, if, if it was his will for all people to be saved, why weren't they saved? It's his will to make salvation available to every human being and to give an opportunity for everyone to be saved or lost. How that happens, for those who never heard, that's, that's God's business, how he works that out, right? That's his will, that's his desire, that no one perish. And out of that, he has determined that he will have a people who put their trust in his son. So he'll get this end result of a people after his own heart while at the same time being just with everyone and showing mercy to everyone. Uh, okay, any other young person question? Okay, we'll go here and then we'll start going back generationally. So you get to ask your second question because Samuel God spoke to a, a few times. So you get to All ask right, again. So I was reading 1 Corinthians 1. I just, I just, it really struck me. First Corinthians one ten mm -hmm. onward, it says, "I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought." My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean in this, one of you says, "I follow Paul." Another, "I follow Apollos." Another, "I follow Cephas." Still another, "I follow Christ." Verse 13 says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Um, so no one can say that you were baptized into my name, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera. And it says, verse 17 says, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Mm -hmm. So what I see here is, honestly, Arminianism and Calvinism are just man-made theologies, and I, that's how I believe it. I'm not, you know, just this is my belief, my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. and the reason we argue over this is because we don't, we forget what's meaningful, and that's the cross of Christ and the reason that he died for us. And honestly, it's not that I'm tired and sick of this, but like, man, I mean, every theological seminar, when you look at it, they never stop fighting, and the fighting is never going to end, and the disagreements are going to keep going, and people are going to bring up new disagreements about every single Bible verse, and that's how man was made, and that's how the human intellectual is. You know, All right, so, so here, yeah, just, 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 just to respond, okay? Um, the goal is ultimately, and as I've emphasized, that we honor one another, right, and that we go do the work, okay? And that, again, is, is part of what James White and I sought to model. In fact, we set it up. Yeah, just focus here since you asked me. Yeah. Um, we set it up that we were going to debate each other first, and then the next night we're going to team up debating two Muslims or atheists or gay activists or something so we could model our unity. In fact, he and I had debated Calvinism, and here's how it came up. I kept getting asked questions on the radio about scripture verses and this and that, and could you debate a Calvinist? I thought, well, yeah, for people's learning and edification, we'll do it, but always with the goal of unity, not division. Um, after that debate, 
I was then uh, asked to debate on TV, a friend of mine, John Burnus, with Jewish Voice Broadcast. We were going to debate two guys who denied the deity of Jesus, denied the Trinity, right? And I needed someone to join me. I asked James White to join me. And, and everyone agrees the two of us are a really good team together. So we want to team up as much as possible. And in doing so, demonstrate unity. Uh, the problem is, though, as you keep studying Scripture over the years, you're going to hold certain beliefs, all right? You're not going to be at home in every church. If you were a pastor, you'd hold certain things. You'd preach certain things. And someone would say, well, pastor, you're being divisive because you believe this, and that church down the block believes that. What you have to do is do your best to understand Scripture. Calvinists would say it's all about the cross of Christ, and Arminian would say it's all about the cross of Christ. But I don't want to be known as either. I want to be known as a follower of Jesus. So what we have to do is say, okay, we're going to have differences. And as we study and pray over years, you're going to come to one conviction. Benjamin's going to come to another conviction. Toby's going to come to another conviction. I'm going to come to another conviction. But if it's all within the family, we've got to work together and, and emphasize unity. So that, that is always my heart goal. And that's why James and I have tried to... And some people don't like it. Some people on both sides are upset with us because we're too nice to each other. They want us to be bashing. But the fact is, there's a real devil that we all stand against. We're going to be together in Jesus forever. But it, it would be naive to think that as you study Scripture over the years that you're not going to have certain distinctive beliefs and ultimately feel if you don't hold to those, it's not healthy, right? So, but we have to do it in a spirit that honors one another. So thanks for raising that. Okay, we'll go here. A blue shirt, slightly older, and then, uh, then we're almost done. Hey. I, I think I'm with the young crowd. Yeah, hang on one second. Everybody here, uh, 20 and younger, just look at me for one second. 20 and younger, just look at me. All right, balcony's gone now. Just look at me for one second. Thanks for sitting so long and being focused. I appreciate it. All right? And those of you who weren't focused, you get credit because everybody around you was. All right? So thanks. Okay, yes, sir. All right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Brown, for being here. Love hearing this. My question for you is, um, since you were Calvinist at one time, I think you could answer this. If irresistible grace says that when God reveals himself to us, we cannot choose to not follow him, right. to go after him. And Jesus was fully God when he was on earth. Then how is it that people that encountered Christ, who was fully God, chose not to follow him or to go against him? Because God didn't choose all of them. But if Jesus was God, then... And when, he, when he said, but he didn't say, follow me to everyone. This would be a Calvinist answer. He didn't say, follow me to everyone, right? right? And he gave the general, he expressed the general will of God, calling people to repent, right? And those who were chosen by God would irresistibly follow. So this, the, the general will of God, again, I don't, I don't believe this, but a Calvinist would, you tell everyone repent. If you repent, if you believe, if you repent, if you believe, you'll be saved, right? Tell everyone that message. But then behind the scenes, God is secretly saying, I choose you, I choose you, I pass by you, I pass by you, I choose you, I choose you. And those chosen will come. So that would be the answer, that he was just doing God's will on the earth, which was only some were chosen. And doesn't Jesus say uh, in, in Matthew and Luke that I thank you, Father, that you've hidden this from the wise and prudent, revealed it to babes? The Arminian answer would be, if we humble ourselves, we'll reveal it. He tells everyone to become like children. Uh, okay. What, what time is it? Are we? 5 to 12. Okay, so we're. One last question, then I'll turn it back to Pastor Steve. Hi. So, how does it make sense when people, Calvinists, pray for someone to get healed or for someone to get saved if they believe that God already predetermined and 
you know, set things up according to his will? Well, number one, with healing, most Calvinists are not charismatic or Pentecostals, so their prayer would be, if it be your will, heal. So that's how they pray for that. Um, <clears throat> most would pray for mercy. Uh, in other words, we only know what we know how to do. So we pray for mercy on everyone. God have mercy. God save them. God turn their hearts. God grant them repentance. Because we don't know who's chosen and who's not. Now, I feel that's inconsistent. I, I would have a problem with that. Uh, if I know God is going to pour out mercy on everyone and give that person an opportunity to repent, uh, I can pray for them. I can witness to them. I can persevere. Um, and it's consistent. If... I'm thinking in the back of my mind, maybe that person's chosen, maybe they're not. It would hinder those prayers. It would hinder that attitude. So ultimately, on a practical level, even if you're a Calvinist, you can't worry about it. <clears throat> now, here's what a Calvinist would say. <clears throat> I'm preaching to 100 people here. And I know that God has some elect. So when I preach, I know that some will be saved, and that gives me confidence. But how do you know that there'll be some elect here? Maybe nobody here is elect. Maybe there's a whole city where nobody is elect. How do I know? Or a whole street, block where no one's elect. So ultimately, you really can't think about it. You just have to preach to everyone and let God save whom he's going to save if you're a Calvinist. In which case, so what does it matter? So I, I agree. I mean, a Calvinist would say it's no problem for them, but ultimately I agree that if I'm pouring out my heart and praying and seeking God, I don't really know if, if it's going to work because... It may not be according to God's will to save that person. That becomes problematic. Just like how can you pray in faith for healing if you're not sure if God wants to heal. So I agree it's a logical consistency. Now, I'll say this last thing. <clears throat> when I became a Calvinist, I was still in a non-Calvinist church, and I foolishly preached a Calvinist-leaning message, thinking that I was still preaching the word and that it would, no one would really notice that I had a different emphasis, but it was foolish and wrong because the church didn't hold to that. No sooner did I preach it that one woman in the church whose husband was a backslidden alcoholic called the pastor and said, well, why should I pray for him? If he's, if he's going to be saved, he's going to be saved. If he's going to be damned, he's going to be damned. I can't help it. And I thought there's no possible logical way she could have gotten that from my message, but immediately that was her first thought. Um, that's a valid question. Again, I, I can't defend it as well as a Calvinist would, but, but I agree that's, that's a valid question. So what I want to encourage you to do is this. Focus your attention on loving Jesus and getting to know him better and knowing the, the work of the Holy Spirit, being a person of the word, and loving a lost world. And let things fall into place. And don't get caught up in doctrinal debates and doctrinal disputes. And anything that puffs you up with pride, stay away from. If this, the path you're on is puffing you up with, I know this and these don't know it, that's a dangerous sign already. Uh, even if you have certain truth in what you believe, that's when you need to examine your heart and step back and make the main things the main things, which is love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and go and change the world. Amen? All right, listen, if you want to connect with me on Facebook, I don't post like what I had for breakfast, you know, the latest cereal or the really cool movie I just saw. But there are always cool quotes that I post, often debates that we're, we're having. So, uh, and then, you know, neat stuff like that. 
So that's Ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R Brown on Facebook. Uh, and then uh, on Twitter, it's Dr. D-R Michael L. Brown, if you want to connect with me there. All right. God bless you. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Awesome. You guys were phenomenal today. Appreciate it. Um, just, this is the pastor of the church. I just want to tell you just quickly that, that I really, um, I don't embrace Calvinism at all. And I'm going to just tell you why I came to that place. And I want to tell you, and I'm not going to go on long, but I want to tell you that um, I respect, there's some people that are highly respected that are Calvinists, but, and we are not Calvinists, we are not Arminists, we are Christians. Mm -hmm. Please remember that, that is Amen. critical. And, uh, and they are man-made in the sense that these were men who were trying to grapple with the scriptures and came to this place. Um, so I have a great respect, but I have to tell you my journey through that and just say this, that it, it's, it's, it's made the, the seem as if Calvinists are very intellectual and smart and Arminius are not. That is not true at all, as Dr. Brown had said, but... Um, the reason why I reject Calvinism is because at the very core and at the very heart of Calvinism, they offend the very love, the depth and love of a God who came and sent his son that all should come to repentance and that none should perish. And that is really very critical. And I'll tell you how I understand that. And the Calvinist will say, well, you see, you're thinking from your heart, not your head. And, and be, when you start thinking from your heart, you get outside of the biblical truths of the scriptures. What a Calvinist will do is take scripture and they'll say, because they want to be very true to scripture, they, they'll take a scripture and they'll take it out of context many times and they'll say, well, didn't it say we were chosen or we were predestined? And the problem with that, like, and I'm not calling it a cult, but so many of the cults of our world, they will do the same exact thing. They will take a scripture and they will isolate that scripture or take several scriptures and back up what they're saying with several scriptures, but they won't see the, the Bible. You have to see the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. That's why Dr. Brown quoted the last book of the Bible, one of the last scriptures in the Bible, because you have to take all of the scripture in totality and then understand God, theology, with the totality of scripture, not just some scriptures here or there. And a Calvinist really wants to be true to that scripture or a set of uh, theological scriptures that were systematically giving them. I will tell you why, emphatically why, I reject the notion that God chooses some and there is limited atonement. In other words, Jesus died on the cross for just a select few. Julia, I don't mean to embarrass you, but please stand up. Please stand up. And this is where... I had to come to that place. Come on up here for a minute, please. This is where I had to come up to the place where I had to choose. Is God a totally 100% loving God and that God loves every mankind, every person, every human being? I had a young man who was very argumentative in the church on, on, the, on the basis of Calvinism. And, and he was very divisive. And I had to ask him, I had to say, please, you need to find the church where you can feel comfortable in because you're causing a lot of division. But I remember the day that he wanted to enter into a kind of a dialogue and maybe even an argument with me. And, um, and, and there's a tension in the scriptures, obviously, and there is a place where it talks about being chosen. 
but not in the context of God choosing some and others, choosing some to go to hell, some to go to heaven. And I'll never forget the day I got on my knees and I said, God, I want to be true to scripture and I want to be true to what I understand your word says about being chosen for knowledge and what God's word says in John 3:16. for God loved the cosmos. God so loved the world, everyone included. I said, how does that all come together? And I remember getting on my knees and saying, God, show me something. Give me a vision. And this is the vision I saw. My three wonderful daughters. Now, I have one of my daughters with me today. Okay? And this is the vision that I saw. I have three daughters, Janine, Julia, and Jenna. And I cannot, because I understand the depths of God's love, which is the core of the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The core of the scriptures is understanding, as Paul says, I want your eyes to be opened that you might know the depth, the height, the width, the length of God's love, that you might be established in the love of God. We have to be true to all of scripture. I understand that. But the heart of the scripture is God loves all people. And it would really be a shame for me to be a missionary and be sent to a people and spend my entire life pouring my life out to these people, but God already chose them to go to hell. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense because at the core of the gospel is going to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. If God already decided some are not, why do I need to waste my time talking to them? So here, I said, I saw a vision of this, and that was that me as a father, okay, I understand things, not just with my heart, but now with my head, okay, as a father, I love my three daughters the same, okay? But I decide one of them is going to go to hell. Tell me how in the world can that be justified in Scripture to say, I gave, well, my wife gave birth to three daughters. They are my daughters, all three of them, and I choose one of them just because I want to be glorified. I find glory in sending one of my, or choosing that one of them goes to hell or choosing to pass over one of those so that they would not be able to get into heaven to me that is the ultimate offense to the very heart of the gospel thank you give julia a big hand for being brave let me um let me pray for you right now let me pray a blessing over you father i pray today for these wonderful young people would you give them a passion for you and for your son whom loved them so so much that he came and gave his life for them i pray oh god that not one person in this room would ever feel so discouraged to think perhaps maybe the reason why i struggle with sin is because i've not been chosen by god to go to heaven i pray that they would all know that the scripture emphatically teaches that before the foundations of the earth According to Ephesians 1, they were chosen to be holy and acceptable in God's sight. Lord, I ask today, Lord Jesus, that you would strengthen these young people and give them a perfect resolve in their hearts, Lord God, to love you with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. And may they love their neighbor as themselves, Lord. And because they love themselves, they have embraced you with eternal life. May they know that every neighbor every person they come in contact with deserves a chance and loves and they would love them so much to be able to share the gospel with them in jesus name we pray amen have a great day we love you guys
Thank you, Dr. Brown. Let's just give Dr. Brown a big, big hand. Thank you so much. Mrs. Fowley, how do you want to direct this? All right, we'll start with ninth grade. Who has ninth grade, fifth period? Okay, ninth grade, she's right in the back. You can go ahead around that way. Tenth grade, you'll follow behind them. Who has a uh, tenth, fifth period? Okay, Ms. Bopel. Ladies, down the center. Ladies. Who's got 11th? 11th grade, fifth period? You're by yourselves. And all this time, all year, you've been by yourselves. Fifth period on Fridays, and I never knew. Miss Lopez. So, okay. 11th grade. You can go that way down the aisle. I think Miss Barry, you have 12th grade. 